Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the magnificent Kat Lowe. Kat has a wealth of experience conducting practical research, collaborative research as she calls it in the field, and she gives some really useful practical advice um, and also thinking particularly about the the moment we find ourselves in now with the challenges of COVID. But she also talks more generally around the ethics of practice, um, talking about the importance of setting up space, safe spaces, about the importance of conversation and reflection. And my own favourite phrase, creating a network of care. Love it. Um, so I do hope you enjoy this episode. so much for being here today um it's lovely to um have a conversation with you because we've known each other for a while haven't we we've kind of been in the same sort of orbit and I have loved your work I love how you approach your work and I've always been just so impressed with the the field work that you do the commitment to that field work the international scope of that um so I am so pleased that you said yes, that you'd come and share your thoughts and advice on field work. Well, thanks, Emma. That's the most delightful introduction and invitation ever. I mean, and right back at you because um, your generosity and thought and careful consideration and just ability to summarise things in a the most elegant way possible, eloquent and elegant, <laughs> is, yeah, so it's a delight. So thank you for this. Bless you. How lovely is that? Um, so we are going to talk um, about fieldwork. But first of all, what I always ask people is to say a little bit about their experience of doing a PhD and how you got to the place you got now. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, of course. Um, so I was thinking a bit about this and... Um, so PhD research and just generally research, I think for me, has been so integrally part of who I am because I think our practice or my practice particularly is really about um, practice research and the way to, to not make work about certain things feels, it comes naturally, so to not do it feels unnatural. And I, I fell into studies, um, I fell into higher education and research um, in the sense, well, not really. I mean, I went to university, but I hadn't planned to go to university. Um, and um, but I'd been always, I'd always done theatre work and theatre work with different, what we might now describe as applied practice, um, just generally more sort of socially engaged theatre making where I was growing up in Switzerland. Um, and then uh, when I was at the University of Glasgow, I got an opportunity to work what feels like what is back home in South Africa in Limpopo province, um, which is a rural part it's up of South Africa with a, a long history of a lot of neglect under apartheid, 
and from there and I think that's the opportunity where I really got went oh there's something really exciting that could happen here in terms of making theatre around social issues and for me particularly it was about health and it's always been about health and in uh, most recently really about sexual health Um, and I think a lot of that's come from I've had a hugely privileged upbringing I'm a South African Swiss woman I'm white and I've grown up in Switzerland and then I've had the opportunity to come to the UK and study in the UK and then end up teaching at a UK university which was not on my agenda at all but it's a wonderful uh, plan Um, and the work I started doing in South Africa was really in response to um, at the time Tabo and Becky's denialism of the link between HIV and AIDS and just watching Mm. this this president, which we now see, there were a variety of reasons for his denial of that. But like we see this now in politics today. I mean, Trump is an example of just like the rhetoric that comes out and the impact that that has on the everyday person. And so I worked with this group of young people in high school in um, in Sabasa, and we talked about sex in a variety of different ways. And actually, fundamentally, my practice has been how do we set up spaces in which to talk about what feels right for you sexually, what feels safe for you sexually, how do we even start a conversation about sex? Um, So I got into talking about sexual health through theatre in 2003 and have been doing it pretty much (laughs) ever since in a variety of different ways. Um, I felt, yeah, it was also for me an opportunity to to travel back to South Africa as well um, and to work in South Africa um, and see my family. So that's been one of the huge joys of field work for me mm. is really this opportunity uh, to, to connect between the different parts of my life, the UK, Switzerland and South Africa and how they all link up. Um, and I ended up fundamentally... I think I also got an opportunity to work in Tanzania um, in 2006 and 2007, researching theatre for development projects that worked around sexual health work and looking at their practices and documenting their practices. Um, And there was something often awry with, especially in South Africa, between the, um, they lacked spaces for, for conversations to happen. People were told information, especially young people were told information in a particular way and then kind of told to get on with it. And it's actually, I mean, talking about sex is highly, I mean, yes. I, don't have, I don't have a teenager. <laughs> but like, um, I happily talk about sex and we'll talk about sex to anyone, but other people, like mm. it's a complicated topic. Um, mm. And like, and it's um, Peter Dirk Ace, who is the most amazing human being in South Africa. He's a, you must look up Peter Dirk Ace. I'll send some links. And he ran a free educational um, show for South Africa, um, sex education show. But it's basically sex is com- comedic. And how do we work around that? Um, so how do we create spaces and conversations where young people can actually just start a conversation? So that's been my drive. In, and that's how I ended up uh, looking at socially engaged practice and how I fell into my field work. Field work. <laughs> Brilliant. And so that you kind of, you came through that study and then um, I think because people are always interested in, in terms of how people have got their current job. So that there was a kind of, oh, there's of a sense of you working through your, um, your research, your PhD, and then got a job after that. 
Yeah, so I um, I studied at Glasgow and then I went to Manchester and I did a, an MA at Manchester and then did my PhD at Manchester with um, the amazing uh, James Thompson, Jenny Hughes and Maya Green. And through actually through all of my, once I graduated from Glasgow, I I've taught alongside, so I've been a visiting lecturer in various different institutions. Um, and then I hilariously had my Viva and my my job interview for Central in the same week, what? which was great fun. <laughs> and my external examiner also happened to be on my interview panel. <laughs> so it was like, hi, see you twice. Um, it, was a, it was an interesting week. So I could talk a lot oh. about Viva preparation wow. and how not to do it. <laughs> Um, but so, uh, yes, I handed in my PhD in, um, I think September, 2010, I think. And then, yeah. And then started teaching at Central in the January, 2011. And then also at Goldsmiths. I worked between two different institutions for a while. Um, and then got a full-time post at Central where I've been, yeah, actually, you know what? This is my 10th year at Central. No, it isn't. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my god, which That's is ridiculous. hilarious for me because this is the longest I've ever been anywhere. Um, the house that I'm in at the moment is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Up until about eight years ago, I moved every two years. So this feels wow. very, very permanent. <laughs> I can't believe that you've been there so long, but the, but yeah. the, the but I suppose. I mean, <laughs> Your practice is always evolving. So I think it's that you've been there, but things have certainly changed since you started there in your work. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And I think there's some really interesting stuff come up from that in terms of um, about contextualization for your work. I know it's really important. Um, Setting up spaces. I think that is key and a conversation um, and this, this sense of that being central to, to field work in terms of space to work and how you negotiate that, how you set that up. Um, and I know that now not only have, do you do your own field work, you supervise students doing their field work. Yeah. So let's get into that then in terms of your experiences of field work or your advice for field, for field work. We were thinking of like the mm. sort of the pros and cons. So your thoughts on that, please. Okay. <laughs> so um, field work, or I, I think I wouldn't describe it as, I, I, we ne- rename it practice, but right. um, no, but that's, that's fine. It's more like actually the pro is the privilege to spend time with people. And this privilege to spend time to sit and think and make and adapt um, to sit with the materials and really set up a space for exploration. So a lot of the way we work, we talk about our practice is very much about co-collaborative research. So um, the young people or the women I end up working with, they are the co-researchers. I have a general theme, uh, which is a proposal of what the project might look like, but fundamentally, if you know, if they choose to focus on something else, well, you know what, that's what we'll look at, you know, so how do we, so it's always about negotiation. um, And it's about setting up trust and finding ways of working. And I think part of that is, is about honesty, in the sense is like, there's, there's, it's important, obviously, in terms of safeguarding and vulnerabilities and working around that. But I think what I've become really conscious of over the past or t- I mean, I've just pu- finished, I've just published my book, which is um, 
on my PhD research, which is like 10 years later, which is, um, and I've spent a lot of time sitting and thinking about why, why was that piece of practice so important? Um, and it is fundamentally that space to sit and think and to be honest and talk openly. Um, and I think also at the time of the practice, I was the same age as the people that I was working with. So we were learning together in a particular way, especially, um, especially when we, when you start talking about sex and how do you negotiate what safe sex for you? So there's a sense of, 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 a privilege of time and space for exploration that people have time and give you the time and that it's um, it's a mutual, and I suppose remembering and acknowledging the mutual benefits you get out of it and actually really acknowledging your what you get out of it. Mm. I mean, I'm really conscious that as a result of this PhD practice, I have a book, I have a job, I have a reputation, good or bad, who knows, don't answer that one. Very good, about, no, it's very good. <laughs> about the way we work and actually I've so I'm really consciously always thinking and part of it and actually I think that's where I really think about the pros of practice uh, or the opportunity to do extended field work is that you get to build relationships so of the of the 30 odd people I worked with in 2008 I managed to um, meet up with them again in 2009 um, about so 30 people join. So, well, anyhow, I managed to meet up with about half of them. And then over the years, I'm still in contact with maybe about a third of oh, the participants, which is, and that's where technology has come and helped, which is I'm going to come to in a bit in terms of how do we work forward. But when I started in 2008, there, so much has changed in terms of technology. We didn't, people people didn't have email accounts. Um, a couple of people had mobile phones, but not really. People's mobile numbers change a lot. But now with WhatsApp, with Facebook, which is not my, <laughs> not my natural working ground, but <laughs> WhatsApp, you know, so th- there's been a sense of communication. And actually, joyfully, I had an, a text from one of one of the women who texts me just um, just before Christmas to say that she's she's starting in January. She's starting her university degree in January in music, Amazing. in Cape Town, and it's just like how awesome is that? Yes. And actually, and I think that's where the pros of field work or the pros of practice is that you get. So the I've been back to meet with um, whoever I can get hold of when I'm back in Cape Town. So I've seen people in 2014 and then 2017, and we've done follow up interviews and talked and just talked about the practice. But also we've grown up together and we, the, the the practice has developed beyond like me coming in as a facilitator. Like we'll send pictures of each other's kids. You know, Sia Bongo became a dad. So you know, all of these really exciting life moments have come, and that's been a real. Pro. I think the con thinking about that is the juggling of multiple competing factors. And I think when you're in the throes of field work, um, you often feel like you're wanting to do more and you're being torn between different spaces. And I think um, support is really vital in terms of when you're, when you're on in the middle of your, your field work is like, what does support look like for you? Mm-hmm. And how do you keep, um, how do you keep going there um and what structures you might put in place for you yes and because I think what you're what you're talking about in terms of that negotiation that relationship with real live human beings which of course has the gorgeous messiness to that Mm. in terms of how you negotiate that the ethics of that um it's it's has that fantastic sense of opportunity but also as you say that sense of 
your own vulnerabilities, your own limitations. So what sort of support um, would you recommend for people? So um, I... So I would um, be out and so I had the opportunity. I worked in South Africa and Tanzania for big chunks of time. And I worked and I think the the point of it was I didn't work alone. And that was really fundamental. It's like I was really conscious that I would be working with young people in the country when I knew I'd be going back to the UK to kind of write up or to think. So always to work in partnership if you're able to. So I worked with two awesome local grassroots organizations who are still there fundamentally my PhD then became really about South Africa um it was there was just too much to say um so building really strong working relationships with the people you're collaborating with not just the host organization or finding a host that felt really important for the Mm. practice is to find someone where people could still come to even if I wasn't in the country that felt Mm. the right thing to do ethically um but then also support for you as um as a researcher, so my supervisor and I agreed a weekly check-in um, where I would write logs and talk through and like actually, and that's one of my top tips is thinking about writing a log and writing a log book or um, I have a particular structure, which I'm happy to share. Which, Amazing. Um, with fieldwork, it's just kind of like what stood out, um, what didn't work and why. And it's always been about that gut reaction. I mean, that's my top tip is like when you go into a room or you're doing something and your gut is saying, yeah, not sure about that. Why is what's happened there? Because that's where the biggest learning will be for you as a practitioner, as a researcher, as a facilitator, but also kind of going, actually, if I'm holding the room in this way, if I'm feeling like this, what's happening? So those moments mm. of Mm. so really to strongly and actually that's when you can sit um and write back so I, I know I'm jumping ahead in terms of top tips but document your work document mm. your work in any shape that feels good for you so um I discovered I was dyslexic once I came to start teaching at Central so that's a whole other conversation to do but like yeah. actually being neurodivergent I realized offers so many other brilliant, amazing, creative and messy possibilities. But um, now in 2020, one, <laughs> 2021, mm, we, we have um, amazing technology and I am the least technological person you will ever meet. But things like Dragon, which is like a dictate, um, talk to speak, talk to computer, it writes it out for you stuff. Um, in terms of taking logs, would revolutionize this um I knew that I'd run workshops or like have a session which would be three hours long and then probably spend four hours writing it up Mm. but now you can talk to speak you know so that um because if you document you know my notes from 10 years ago are like I think I've got 200,000 words worth of you know that is just it's amazing as a resource Yes. yes but also share your documentation so again which is so much more possible now is that I wasn't the only person documenting our practice everyone in the room was documenting the practice so like think about multiple different ways of documenting because a takes the pressure off you and also you'll be introduced to other ideas or things you might not have seen and Mm. that's so important for doing practice-based research is that especially with with people um with co-collaborative researchers, you can really go, oh, Babalua thought about it that way and Nondemiso was thinking about it that way. That's really interesting. You know, so that's, I think, really important. Um, 
And that brings so much richness into your work in terms of the way that you let, let, let is not the word, is it? That you um, encourage those other voices to come through. Um, and it, yeah, just does yeah. beautiful things. I think, I mean, the thing, I think it comes back to like, it's collaborative research without the people I worked with, there would be no research and there yeah. would be no documentation of the practice. And I think that's what that's what feels the most ethical, but also the right thing to do. It's like, and it's so much more interesting to hear about what Moxie has to say versus, yeah. Yeah, you know, than this person's view. Um, and I think I'm, it can be, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I think it can be difficult as a PhD student because you can feel like you have to have all the answers and you, you have yeah. to come in and, and offer the 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 reflection and the but that you said something really important about holding a space that that's what you're doing you're holding a space and you're facilitating conversation and that's that is the PhD research isn't it that's the yeah word. yeah because you yeah exactly um and I think the thing about practice or field work is that it doesn't finish um, and it will never finish. So you need to pull it, you need to draw a line. End of 2009, that's when, I'm, you know, whatever it happens to be. But also to acknowledge that it will still come into your everyday life. And I think that's really important because you're acknowledging the wholeness of you as you're not a PhD, just a PhD researcher. You're a PhD researcher and a sibling or um, a child or a mother or a carer. You know, there's the multiple possibilities of you are held in that space. And I think if we strive to divvy up and go, this is just me being the PhD researcher, this is me just being the lecturer, that do it doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important. And actually, I think that kind of allows the messiness of research to really thrive. The fact that I have, we have this sort of network of care, um, you know, that Amanda sends me a message at the 1st of January every year to go, Happy New Year, what's in store? You know, there's a check. That's a lovely sort of, that's a value. And I think especially in applied or socially engaged practice, we talk so much about the values and the outputs. And it's like actually for us to start thinking really carefully about the ephemeral values, the tangible values, the affective values that have huge resonances and are deeply important um, and are more important than going 72% of the people are now wearing condom you know all of that yeah. stuff <laughs> rubbish network um, of care <laughs> I love it network of care that's a gorgeous phrase gorgeous yeah. and it's that's really important for from for my practice um I mean thinking about what do you do now in terms of practice or field work under COVID and I'm saying that what I'm going to say I'm prefacing or putting a caveat is that I am not a digital native and I am I am I'm the last person you'd come to to ask them how to use a camera or something like that. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a joyfully technical person and I still look quite vague with Zoom and things like that. But the digital has been revolutionary. So this year we've run um, remotely two projects in South Africa. One, um, actually three projects in South Africa, uh, two in one in Hillbrow and then two in rural part of South Africa in the, in the Western and the Northern Cape. Um, and one of them has been a sustained project with a, a group of women that I was supposed to be with in May, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, and we've done weekly workshops up between, between May and December. We did weekly check workshops. We, I ran workshops remotely um, and then they also worked together. <clears throat> and I think 
the fact that this practice wouldn't have happened if we hadn't been able to embrace the digital. And like when I say embrace the digital, we were working in a room that had no Wi-Fi. There's only one phone, you know, so WhatsApp has been really important. So actually, I've learned so much about working collaboratively, remotely. Mm. And I think a huge amount is possible. Um, that we're just so we're doing digital storytelling and all sorts of things but a lot of that's based on the fact that I have really strong existing working relationships with co-researchers and participants in South Africa now the group of people we worked with the women we worked with um, in in the Durans in in May we'd never worked together so it was a new project but my the Erica Lutish who's the the, the other uh, artist researcher on the project she was based in South Africa so she was able to hold the room and I think this is the thing it's like I think one of my PhD candidates is is really struggling because their practice was actually everyone's practice was supposed to be in person Mm -hmm. Um, and one is possible for them to kind of start doing it because they've they've thought carefully about the digital and have moved the practice online to the digital and actually works really well for their practice but the other one was very much about it was just about to start and the organization they're working with their funding's been cut now you know so there's just it's it's really hard um i think if you don't have an existing structure or network because there's so much there's so much important safeguarding uh ethics digital access um how how the participants do they have equipment you know all of those really important questions um so for example in south africa we we bought mobile phones where appropriate or uh, we paid for um data um so people are you know so we're able to have whatsapp groups so there's so many other criteria for that and i'm really happy to talk to people or share information further yeah. about that. But because um, I think what I keep saying to people is that sense of this is this is the this is the work, this is the chapter that you're writing. You're writing a chapter about how to research in a time of COVID. So that sense of that, like you say, in terms of finding new ways of working, it will it will throw into relief things that you might have assumed. Um, and you'll kind of go, oh, yeah, actually, that's really important. I need to kind of document that and think about that. So I, I suppose it's that sense of your your research project will still be continuing, but it may look very different and it may throw up really different considerations. And it, it, to embrace that, because actually research is responsive. You know, these are the circumstances in which you're working at the moment, and that's okay. Yeah. You know what? Because... I think this is the other thing. The PhD is not the be-all and end-all, you know. It's just one major, major hurdle, which is enjoyable and engaging and challenging and absolutely brain-frying and then Phoenix-like you will emerge, you know. You do emerge. It's a process. Like, it has brought me so much and I've learned so much and it's, and I think to not separate the PhD from who you are as a, as a whole being. Um, and it's just one small part of what you're doing at this point in time. And it's just one small part of your whole human existence. So oh, I love to be, that. It's a small part. To be kind. Yeah, to be kind and caring to yourself, I think. And you will get through it. 
I promise. And I think what you said earlier about honesty too, I think in the, in kind of in terms of documenting this part of your process that you're in mm. at the moment and the challenges of COVID, your examiners will be interested to hear about that. What challenges came up for you? How did you negotiate that? What what learning were you drawing on? It's it's all part of it. It's all grist to the mill, isn't it? And part totally. of your human ex- yeah. human. Ex- I love this small part of your whole human existence. Um, oh gosh, there's so much in there, Kat. And thank you so much for offering to um, for other for people to make contact for other information too because I, I, you have a wealth of experience in this area and that I'm sure people will be grateful for that but I am going to finish as I always do asking the unfair question because you've already given us some top tips <laughs> but I'm going to ask if there is if there is a top tip that you would give in terms of field work practice um I think your plan until you're blue in the face. Um, you'll, you'll think about the documentation from every angle. Um, just remember to stay open. And it's the thing that I really realised that about the practice that we did together in South Africa in 2008 wasn't just about what was in the room, but it was the stuff that was happening around the sides, around the edges. And that's really what I'm, not to blatantly plug my book, but that's what I'm doing, plug my book, is that I talk about the idea of this. <laughs> thank you. It's about the idea of apertures of possibility. And it's to take a moment to think about this, the intangible, those glimmers of lights, the things that just happen on the margins, the stuff that happens on the margin, the conversation, the look, the touch, or the conversation that keeps coming back, those taking that opportunity to pause and to think and to kind of put a little frame about that funny thing that happened on the side, that's what you should keep being open to because I think that's where the real delightful, interesting things happen that are really of value, of affect, of importance. So to pause, um, to respond to your gut, to listen to your gut and to kind of go, oh, what was that just happening there on the side of my eye, that glimmer? What is that? And don't go for the obvious. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for encouraging us to pause and reflect. Um, thank you so much, Kat. And I will, as always, the references um, will be in the show notes um, so that people can follow those up um, and obviously cats contact details too um and thank you to everyone for listening thank you thanks so much hey <laughs>